evening. What I'd like to talk about tonight is the six perfections. We talked about it briefly last night, and somebody asked, what's the six perfections that's in this Bodhicitta prayer, prayer number two, the six paramitas, the six principles of trans of enlightened living. Excuse me. When we talk about the great perfections of Chan Mahamudra, as we've been talking, when we talk about wisdom, when we talk about enlightenment, the question inevitably arises, how does it show up in life, which after all is what counts? So according to the Tibetan or the Mahayana outlook, it shows up as enlightened living, as a union of wisdom and compassion. It shows up as the embodiment of the six paramitas, the bodhisattva's way, the six perfections, generosity, morality or ethics, patience, acceptance, energy, effort, meditation, contemplation, and wisdom. It shows up as these, as these things, and also these things are ways of cultivating wisdom, since they are wisdom in action, meditation in action, awareness in action. So it works both ways. Wisdom informs enlightened action. And by enlightened action, I want to stress, I'm not talking about Buddha's enlightened action, as different from yours and mine. I'm not talking about the guru's so-called enlightened, perfect activities, no matter what they seem to be doing, must be perfect. But I'm talking about any given moment, whether our life, whether activity is sane, enlightened, whatever you want to call it, free, <coughs> perhaps beyond karma, if it really is, or whether it's delusional, harmful, insane, and so on. And I think we know the difference if we really check, don't we? If we're straight with ourselves. Let's not pretend that we don't know the difference between sanity and insanity the difference between harming others and being helpful, the difference between aggression and kindness. So in the basic teachings of the sutras of Buddhism, it outlines, the Buddha outlined the Eightfold Noble Path, which is basically just divided into three, easy to remember, sound bites. Sheila, Samadhi, and Prajna, ethics, meditation, and wisdom. Without ethics, meditation is unstable. Without stable meditation, wisdom doesn't develop. And on the other hand, wisdom informs both ethics and meditation. So they support each other mutually. It is wise to be ethical, moral, and not harming, but helpful, right? <coughs> it is wise to cultivate awareness rather than unawareness, mindfulness rather than mindlessness, right? So it's not just that shila, ethics, or self-discipline leads up to wisdom. 
it is wisdom in action, in life. Wisdom shows up as impeccable living, shila, ethics, morality, whatever you want to call it, balance, self-discipline. <coughs> wisdom shows up as centeredness, awareness, consciousness, mindfulness, doesn't it? So again, it's not just that we develop from one to another. Each informs, supports the other. So these three basic trainings that we find in the basic scriptures of Buddhism, in the Buddha's teachings of how to go beyond suffering, morality, meditation, and wisdom, which are unpacked into the whole Eightfold Path, the Eight Steps to Enlightenment, which I'm sure you all know what they are. I don't know if I want to try to remember them right now. <laughs> they start with right view. <laughs> got one. One for one. Right understanding. That's so boring. Move the brains around a little bit. Right speech. Right action. Right livelihood. Put them up to five. <laughs> right something. Right mindfulness. And right meditation. I don't know. Did I get them? <laughs> what are the last two? What? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter. You get the point. Yeah, seven. It doesn't matter. Well, the eighth <laughs> one is the right humor. <laughs> Very important. Or the right exercise. <laughs> no, Buddhist, it wasn't exercise. No. But it should have been. If Buddha was alive today, it would be exercise and humor would be important parts. <laughs> So all of this is subsumed in the three trainings of ethics, meditation, and wisdom. So the Mahayana later development, which the Vajrayana, Tibetan Buddhism, is grounded in basically, you know, I mean, this is just a Tibetan way of looking at it. Don't take it too seriously, but it's a good, it's a good outlook. Is the six paramitas are, again, the way to, for the Bodhisattva to develop <coughs> wisdom and enlightenment, and they're also the enactment of wisdom and enlightenment. So when we talk about Ashanti Deva and Stephen Batchelor talk about entering the Bodhisattva path, you can read that book if you want, very good book, by Ashanti Deva and Stephen. (laughs) 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 We talk about the six paramitas, the six principles of enlightened living, the six perfections. What's so funny? This is really true. <laughs> Don't tell Stephen I'm making fun of you. The six principles of enlightened living. And these have outer, inner, and innate, as I prefer to translate it. They call it secret, but I say innate characteristics. This is how we live the truth of Dzogchen, of Prajnaparamita, the sixth perfection. Not just we get to the sixth wisdom, but wisdom is in each of the perfections. That's why they call perfection, paramita, transcendental virtues, perfect generosity. Not just making a donation so that we get our name carved on the wall of the church. There's a little self-interest in that, isn't there? 
So perfect generosity means unselfish giving, disinterested charity, or even love, as the Christians call it, caritas, charity, which is love. So externally, the first paramita, or wisdom virtue, is called dana paramita, generosity. Externally means giving, charity, alms, giving material things, you know, money, money to beggars, donations, food, medicine, whatever we can give that's helpful. Also shelter, protecting life, giving life, generosity, external generosity. Internally, it could also include being generous of spirit, open-hearted, you know, open hands, open arms, open heart, open mind. Being generous with ourselves, like not being me- me. miserly with our emotions, allowing them to display themselves, <laughs> experiencing them, doesn't necessarily mean acting them out, but experiencing them, having a rich, creative inner life. Being open, generous of spirit, big-hearted, warm, cheerful, abundant, and so on. And innately, again, just to remind you, we're going through the outer, inner, and innate aspects of the six paramitas. Innately, we have abundant, inexhaustible resources. They're always pouring out. Let's not overlook that. There's no limit. The more we give, the more we have. So the second paramita is Shila paramita. Don't forget, these three trainings, Shila, Samadhi, Prajna, are in the six paramitas here. The Buddha's Eightfold Path is in this Bodhisattva path of the six paramitas. Second one is Shila paramita, which basically externally is morality, ethics, self-discipline, following precepts, not harming following the Ten Commandments, you know, whatever your scheme is of the good and wholesome life. Not harming is the basic principle. Shila, ethics, morality. But internally, being true to ourselves, being straightforward, not deceiving ourselves, being honest, not just, I shall not lie, but I will cut every possible corner and sweep the garbage under the rug and put the radioactive waste under the rug of the ocean and all the rest. Who are we fooling? So internally we have to practice, you know, if we're going to have an integrated enlightened life, internally we have to practice non-harming, straightforwardness, shila, virtue, righteousness, not self-righteousness, righteousness. And innately, we have innate purity of heart. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? And we can live from there when we're not afraid. The third paramita of perfection, <coughs> principle of enlightened living. Dana, Shiva, Shanti. Is Shanti Paramita, patience, sometimes mistranslated as peace, but that's part of it, why not? Patience, tolerance, acceptance, 
you know, externally, being patient, being in it for the long run, not needing instant gratification all the time, being tolerant and accepting and so on. And internally also being perseverant and giving ourselves space to just be and not being in a hurry and not pushing and forcing <coughs> ourselves and not demanding and expecting too much. And innately, we are here for the long run anyway, in the deathless, in the innate, in our innate Buddha nature. Our eternal soul, as we never say in Buddhism. <laughs> We're not allowed to say. <laughs> in the deathless as we say in Buddhism that we're allowed <laughs> very different in the deathless unborn Buddha nature clear light we have to be patient for that to emerge and reveal itself you know you can't pull up the flowers you water them a little bit but don't pull on them too hard it doesn't help fourth Vidya paramita, <coughs> Sanskrit. Vidya, very interesting words. Of course, the square translators always call it effort. Such a weak translation. Vidya also means courage, fearlessness, enthusiasm, zeal. I'll stretch it further. Passion. Passion for enlightenment. The courage of the bodhisattva to keep going until there is no more suffering. So externally it's like effort, energy, enthusiasm, and zeal, endeavor, diligence, I'm sure you've heard these words. And internally, the courage to take on the hero's path of alleviating universal suffering. That's virya. That's the effort, that's the courage of the bodhisattva. And innately, we are all beyond fear and beyond hope. We have infinite enthusiasm and passion for what we care about, don't we? So why suppress that? Pretend we're dispassionate, disinterested observers. Bullshit! <laughs> Bullshit. <coughs> Don't stunt yourself. Become like a little bonsai. <laughs> Keep trimming off your roots and your branches. So, although you're actually a cedar or a pine, you only grow this big. <laughs> and you belong in a museum somewhere under glass. Or a, medita or a monastery or something. Or a meditation center like this one. <laughs> no offense. <laughs> you know what I mean. Innately, we all have that love and that heroism, that passion for freedom, for life, for awakening, whatever you want to call it. For love, for truth. <coughs> the vidya paramita, the effort, the effort, the passion for awakening. And fifth is dhyana paramita. Dhyana is 
interesting word translated many different ways. Meditation, absorption, concentration. The word Zen is a translation of dhyana. The Chinese bastardization of the word dhyana. Zen, chan, zen, dhyana. Meditation, introspection, contemplation, focus, mindfulness, cultivation of awareness, and so on. Externally, you know, we cross our legs, cross our hands, cross our eyes, cross our fingers, and hope to get enlightened after an hour, or ten days, or whatever, three years, you know, however long. It never seems to be enough for now. <laughs> That's if we don't understand what freedom is. It has nothing to do with time. That's another subject. So externally, meditating, contemplating, you know, of course this includes prayer and yoga and all kinds of things. Internally, are we just going through those motions or is there something happening internally also? Like awareness inquiry, investigation, interest. Are we looking into things? Are we just parroting the prayers and mantras? We're just crossing our legs, but we're not really looking into things. We're not really present. We're just killing time. So internally, it's the examined life, as Emerson called it reflecting upon things, contemplating, awareness, inquiry. And, of course, innately, the mind is whole and coherent, luminous, whether we cross our legs or not. It's always our, our Buddha nature, our bodhicitta, our heart, mind is always totally present, whether we're concentrated or distracted, whether we're Buddhists or not, the spirit is whole and free and alive. So innately that is always present. Let's not overlook it. That's where we're coming from. It's not just what we're heading towards. And then the sixth paramita is, of course, the famous prajna, prajna paramita, perfect transcendental wisdom. Again, which we all aspire towards as if it's somewhere else. But it is found in each of the five that we just talked about as enlightened living. Prajnaparamita, wisdom, gnosis, transcendental awareness, cosmic consciousness, you know, all these words that people make up about it, kind of approximate concepts. Enlightenment, clarity, wisdom, prajnaparamita, prajna, intuition, Dizuki calls it. Before thought, it's like knowing before thought, <coughs> intuitive wisdom. Externally, it's like being wise rather than being foolish, being sage. Internally, when it gets better, it's really just, it's like, well, externally it would be common sense, but internally, it's like having a sense of yourself, being centered being together, being whole, not looking for anything, calling off the search, as some teacher calls it. You know, not just being seekers, but being finders. 
getting off the path at last and into the parking lot (laughs) (coughs) or whatever inner wisdom our own knowingness self-authentic not depending on anybody else's approval or confirmation and innately it is pure being nothing to do no way to improve it no way to ruin it the great perfection and all that innately innate wisdom not just prajna but jnana <coughs> hard to translate sense of term innate wakefulness pristine awareness not just wisdom you know I'm wise he's foolish but something prior to that like the first flash of knowingness total awareness hard to inexpressible but being pure being that's the innate wisdom our inner truth that we all have so these six principles of enlightened living the six paramitas six perfections are wisdom in action great perfection in action and also odd steps to realizing that like six steps to freedom these are called the practices of the bodhisattvas that combine the ultimate absolute view of great mahashunata great emptiness luminous openness with the conventional reality that we all live in cause and effect interconnectedness karma morality and so on compassion and so on so when we hear about bodhisattvas when we take the bodhisattva vow when we make the bodhisattva prayers these are all affirmations of these possibilities that we aspire to cultivate these these enlightened actions and also that we affirm that we have that within us that we recognize the possibility within ourselves so I think it's very important so in our tradition we take these bodhisattva vows we make these bodhisattva like aspirations every day like the ones we're chanting in the morning here save all beings and transcend illusion and all that If, if the Dharma and if truth, if the freedom, if enlightenment is worth anything, it's got to show up in daily life. It's got to, it's got to show up. It's not just something to crow about, to talk about, to study. It has to be lived, enacted, and embodied. Otherwise, it's meaningless. So I think it's incumbent upon each of us to actualize those truths. because they are self-evident it's hard to argue with those things it's clear to us all it's not a matter of belief in some dogma right it's clear it resonates with our deepest intuitive truth so I think it's incumbent upon each of us since we're interested in this to see for ourselves how it works which pieces fall together for us at each point along the way and so on 
we can study these things a little bit, we can talk about them, we can practice them, meditate on them. What really makes the difference is working out their implications in daily life. What are the implications of harming others? Or, on the other hand, of helping them? How does helping, how does harming others or helping others harm or help ourselves? And so on. Let's not just memorize the three this, the eight that, and the 64 and 128 catechisms. Let's apply it to our actual life, to how our body-mind works, to how our energy works, how our relations work. So then we, it is possible to enjoy and celebrate enlightened living, right livelihood, right speech, and all the rest. You know, not just right, but perfect, appropriate, complete, impeccable vocation, not just right livelihood. Oh, yes, I should work for charity, right? That's a little bit square. <coughs> How about finding your own true vocation? That's what's called for. So, that's what I'd like to say about this tonight. If you happen to read the Entering the Bodhisattva Path, you find, well translated by Stephen Batchelor, you find there's one chapter of the book on each of these six perfections. It's very interesting. Especially the fifth chapter, I think, is the best one for me, at least, on patience. Which talks about anger, talks about patience, and other things that may not just be of scholarly interest. (laughs) (laughs) So, any questions or anything tonight, please? Yeah. um, Sometimes I meet people who are having to be carers of people who are terminally or um, severely ill. And I'm always sort of totally overwhelmed about how people who I knew before they were carers seem to have changed so completely in this caring lifestyle. Um, And they become such wonderful people. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't imagine ever becoming like that, you know. But there seems in this caring situation that some miracle takes place. And I'm wondering, can you say anything about how people change in that way? Well, perhaps the demands and exigencies of those very um, (coughs) crucial or difficult situation brings out the best in us. Uh, to put yourself in that situation. It's sort of, it's a situation forcing us to change, and here we are trying to change right. uh, without the situation. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. But it's the same change. Really? Yes, yeah, it's in the same direction. Yeah. That's why it says, you know, like in the kind of scriptures that I'm talking about, like the entering the Bodhisattva path, it says things like, put yourself in those situations, give others the success and take on yourself the failure. Give them the credit and take on the blame. Or, you know, 
take on the suffering of others and give them your health, your wealth, your happiness. So that we, you know, those are like abstract in a way. But how to actually apply that in life? One example is, you know, like to do hospice work or work in the cancer ward or whatever you're thinking of work with, you know, crack mothers or whatever, because. It, pro- it demands that you be present and you forget about your... Or I'll give you another example, being a Dharma teacher. Because <laughs> you have to be there. That, I think it's very revealing when you actually have to be there. You're not just sitting at home being depressed and wondering why you're depressed all the time because life is meaningless. You know? Why don't you go out and encounter life and see if it is meaningless? And of course, if we, you know, as much as we give, that much we get. So, if you're a healthy caretaker and you do it in a good way, not a burnt-out, codependent caretaker, but if you're a healthy caretaker in the helping profession, you know, you might become very saintly and sagely, supposedly like Schweitzer or Mother Teresa or you know other examples that we might think of. And it's a great work. It's great to volunteer. It's also a great livelihood, you know, occupation to pursue. I myself do hospice work at some places. And being with the dying is really a privilege and an opportunity for spiritual growth. We just Right, that's right. But is there, can you compare this? Or is there Probably they already know these things. They don't need to have it preached at them. <laughs> and it's not just from Buddhism that one learns these things, is it? check in the helping professions, you might find sometimes there's more um, like helping than understanding or something. Let me go further. You know, like if you check, you might find like in religion, you might find a little more missionaryizing rather than the wisdom. There's like the intention to help, but there's not the wisdom to know what really helps. So that's a wisdom and compassion or truth and love always go together. If it's real compassion, not just pity, you know, not just trying to make yourself feel good by helping someone. If it's real compassion, selfless compassion, altruism, and love, it is wise, it is selfless, it is detached. So, wisdom without compassion, truth without love is, is a lie, it's not true. But love without truth is blind. It doesn't know what to do. It tries to convert the heathens. Maybe the heathens are smarter than us. They don't need to be converted. But it's going around trying to convert them all to love, but it's not very wise, perhaps. If you imagine a person with with this true compassion and grace, but without any notion of of this non-reality thing and all these things in it, sure. It might be an unselfish mother. 
or maybe they don't have the, compa- the concept of what did you say, non-dualism, what, emptiness, what did you say? Yeah. yeah. But uh, they come to it from their own way somehow. Perhaps another religion, philosophy, or natural understanding, or life experience. Or you can make up any number of explanations, past lives, or you know, whatever you want. Maybe they're wise in the ways of living. Maybe they learn those messages from the wind and the rain and the flowers and birth and death and, you know, all of their experiences. Like natural Buddhists. There's a kind of Buddha called Pratyeka Buddha, supposedly, has no teacher. Just learn those things from seeing things. So, you know, with or without any ism, <coughs> Buddhism or any other ism, I suppose wisdom is there to be plucked. Don't worry about him. Let's <laughs> talk about you. So what's your question? Can you do it without a teacher? Or what, what's, what's, yeah. bu- what's bubbling there? It's a postage scale. You don't have to measure enlightenment. Why would you want to measure it? To know if you should follow someone, or you know, what, what, what are you getting at? Yes, that's right. That's the only way you know. You get some crazy notion and you follow it. Right. And it works out one or it doesn't. connected to your moment, you know, the first moment here or after four more days, whenever, that you experience that release, that release, that is the end of suffering. 
but how long does it last? How stable is it? That's the question. Even if you have a major enlightenment breakthrough. You know, as I always say, it's easier these days to get enlightened than to stay enlightened. <laughs> <laughs> Who is your, this teacher of advice that you're talking about? Does he or she have a name? Yeah, good. So if you, when you feel like you can learn something, go, you know, learn it. It doesn't matter how enlightened yeah, somebody is. problem with Advaita as it's taught today is what is the practice? How do you just be? I understand. He says the crocodile can do this much longer than you, you That's exactly the point. But you also said you get this insight and then you have to work with this insight. Right. You have to mature them. So what's the practice with all this Advaita, this non-dual talk? So the Dzogchen answer to that and the contract, the the Vajrayana answer, is that with that absolute view, just be, we have the relative practice according to our own capacities. Like you said, Patram Sheikh studied Dharma and practiced for 20 or 30 years. So you learn to be, although we already are, you get more seeped in the being. You know, the wine is a, the wine is already in the bottle, but it gets better year by year. Don't <laughs> drink it all up too fast. Like if you went out now and started teaching Advaita, I'd say it's going to be a pretty, you know, like one-year-old wine. I know, I hear you, but I'm just saying, so don't drink it too fast. It gets better year by year. Give it space to mature, work out its implications in life. What does it mean, the non-dual, <coughs> since we feel separate much of the time? Maybe separation, maybe feeling separation is part of the non-dual. If you cut the sky in half, are there two skies suddenly? Of course not, but you can still say east and west. So, don't cut off your own spiritual growth by saying, you know, there's nothing to do too soon. I think that the, you know, this kind of um, Dzogchen approach integrates very well the absolute view beyond action and inaction with relative practices that can mature and stabilize those realizations. That's the genius of all the Buddhist teaching, the past practice aspect. And, you know, without criticizing Advaita or anything, which is a wonderful and, you know, profound tradition, and I've been to Punjaji and all these Advaita teachers also, I think what's missing these days, I don't know how it was in the past, is the practice aspect, not the view. They explain it, but then what? 
Everybody goes away afterwards and says they're enlightened. <laughs> but look what happens. Pointed is fine, but look at the rest of the mess. <laughs> you know what I mean. So, I think it's incumbent upon us to really penetrate these kind of profound mysteries. Non-dual, you know, union. This is profound. This isn't just superficial. This is the big issue of life, the existential questions, not just, you know, superficial, <coughs> quick answer questions. Add hot water and after five days you're enlightened. The journey is an infinite journey. Let's mingle the Dharma with our whole life until we die. And even beyond all our lifetimes. That's the great way. That's the timeless way. Not instant enlightenment. talking about fear, so I was saying instead of retracting or trying to rid of fear, you just maybe go into face it or go hang with it a little longer before you retract, or even in the tantric and the terrifying practices <coughs> of the crazy wisdom siddhas of ancient India, they practice in graveyards, you, you know, charnel grounds, haunted houses, Central Park at night. <laughs> 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 wherever the most terrifying situation is to go to face your fears whether you offer yourself to the muggers or the demons or whatever yeah exactly <laughs> family visits <laughs> Ramdas always used to say after you come back from your 10 years in India or your 3 month retreat you know high as a kite Go and visit your parents and family for Christmas. <laughs> There's many buttons left to be pushed. <laughs> so in the Tantrayana, there's a, actually a practice for that called should, cutting, cutting ego, where you offer, you instead of, you know, whatever you're afraid of, you say, go away and I don't want it. You offer yourself to those, you know, called demons fears, whatever, you even visualize them as demons, you feed the demons, what do you feed them? You feed them your own possessions, the things you're most attached to, like your body, <laughs> your head, <laughs> your blood, your flesh, you know, come and get it. With generosity? That's the practice <laughs> of generosity, that's the way of developing, because generosity really means letting go of attachments, Would right? You, 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 you yes, that's the idea. You feed them. That's what I'm saying. They come and get it. The demons want blood. You, you, you have blood. Come and get it. That's the way of paying off, like a kind of a recycling or sort of balancing your karmic debt. Like you might be very attached to your body or something. You know, so it's a good. And it's easy to give away couple of pence to the beggars, but can we give away things we're really attached to? That's really the, the more terrifying, like wild practice of tantric generosity. 
Yes, you going on? Would even have an implication of Ah, Yes, there's a tremendous implication there. <coughs> For example, rather than always I want and I don't want attachment and aversion, we can do a form of that, what we just talked about, tantric generosity, we can call it, in this case, Mahayana generosity. Exchanging yourself and others, giving them the credit and accepting the blame. You know, being modest or humble, or giving away the best and and taking the less part for yourself, or putting yourself in the other's shoes. You're exchanging yourself in others, not just competing. You know, he's trying to gather all the marbles in your corner. So you retool this whole attachment and aversion dualism. <coughs> there are actually Mahayana prayers to cultivate this. So you actually start to get used to the idea in your meditation by affirming these things. May all beings have my health and wealth and merits and may I have take on all the suffering and disease <coughs> and illness. You actually pray those things. This is where the fearlessness of the bodhisattvas come in, the vidya paramita. Fearlessness. May all the suffering, I'm just repeating here at the Mahayana prayer, may all the suffering of all beings come upon me and they have all my merit and happiness and well-being. So when you make those kind of prayers, exchanging yourself and others, Tonglen, in Tibetan, Tonglen prayers, you start to get used to the idea. So when you go out in world, in business, in relationships, you know, whatever you do, then you notice how you usually behave is not really like that. We're always trying to get the best part. So it starts to bring up some questions. What is all this getting the best for me actually doing? Is it really the way to do it? Are the others so different? Don't they want the marbles too? You know, so maybe you, you don't go around stealing and shoplifting and, and running over dogs and cats in the street, but you still in small ways do all kinds of, you know, little harmful or manipulative or deceptive or exploitative acts, right? Don't we all? We start to retool that conditioning in the light of a more enlightened self-interest. Like to help others is also to help oneself. guilt enter into this and the guilt yeah, well, of, of being selfish hmm? yeah. the implied guilt here of being selfish what did you say? how did guilt enter into this I didn't say guilt no you but um, there's something about to be able to cherish and give love to others I suppose I don't believe that one can do that completely self-effacingly. There's something about having to give love to oneself in the first place. Yes. Accept oneself and yes. love oneself to be able to love others. Mm-hmm. That one doesn't resolve one's own feelings, one's own um, derogatory 
obviously feeling the world about oneself by giving love to others. That's a complete misunderstanding. Well, that's true. You can't love others unless you love yourself. That's true. Where does all this come into this? Well, this whole week we've been chanting like compassion and loving kindness, including forgiving, accepting, and loving yourself, right? So that the balance is part of the mix. Also, when we say all beings, that includes oneself, and so on. But uh, I think uh, I want to be a bit careful with one that is a little moralizing, pointing yes. thing, right? Yes, that's right. Yes. Um, do I have to feel bad because I'm not going out sort of helping every sick person and poor person I sort of come across? No. You don't. You shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> now, you have to be reasonable after all. And a lot of these are ideals. We pray, you know, to love all with unconditional love. Just so we dull up just a little more love. Just a little more. It wouldn't be a bad thing. Of course, a lot of these practices we're talking about are terrifying or tantric or wild or, or extreme. You know, you don't have to go to the, the graveyards or the whatever Hyde Park at night, you know, to do these things. Just look into your own mind. You find all the fears and demons and doubts and all these things right there. But this is, we're not talking about guilt. What we're talking about is enlightened self-interest. As I said, let's see how it actually works out in life, if it works, if it makes sense. What are the implications of harming others? What are the implications of helping others? What's in it for us? We might be surprised. Little altruism or unselfishness might redound very profitably for ourselves. Let's check it out. Not just say, we're supposed to follow the Ten Commandments. Let's find out what's in it for us. Then there'll be a natural morality. We won't have to remember what, which vows we have to follow and try to get around them, find all the loopholes. <laughs> there'll be a natural morality. So then when the altruism? Now, altruism actually is a really a weak term. It's just sacrifice when actually it's the most sensible thing. Altruism suggests sacrifice in my mind. And I think that, you know, really it's in our own enlightened self-interest to recognize that others are no different than ourselves. Then we can treat others as we ourselves will be treated, as it says. That's not altruism, really. That's enlightened self-interest. We're taking care of ourselves by taking care of others. But all of these things, you know, the concepts are a little vague, they're not very precise, and the associations <laughs> come with them, have a religious overtones, and then we get in trouble, don't we, with all of our slightly unsavory experiences with organized religions and morality being superimposed on us without rhyme or reason. That's why I think when we do Dharma here, I mean, you know, look around this room, the presentation here, there's no signs of the Buddhism. Isn't that interesting? Why do you think that is? It's because we're trying to look into how things are, not 
join a new cult. So I hope you don't take it as, you know, like you should feel guilty if you don't go and join the hospice movement. Anyway, you're going to sell your house and do something else. You have your own problem. Send me all the money when you sell it. <laughs> then you'll get enlightened. <laughs> Any other? Yes? Um, to do if you could do anything and don't tell me have sex <laughs> what do you love to do all day every day <laughs> if you could do anything in the world every day what would you be doing besides having sex Are you trying to make money and, you know, like, do as little work as possible to get the money you need so then you can have your real life? So what does your real life look like? You know, what would it be? You know, painting or meditating or, I don't know what, you know, you tell me? Yeah, well, again, that's the question, but... So that's how I ask myself, that's the direction. what I really want There's no easy answer. What do you feel called? You know, vocation is sometimes called a calling, you know? Mm. It's like one's being called. What, what are we being called to do? If you do what you love, it might even support yourself. That's called right livelihood, a true vocation. But even if it doesn't support you, you can still do it and maybe find some other way to livelihood yourself on the side. Mm. <laughs> but if you do what you love, you might be surprised that you know, the universe might respond in kind. So you're not going to tell us? <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. You're uh, it's for you. Yeah, process, I understand. Achieving. It's like what keeps us up all night? When we're bored, we fall asleep at nine or ten o'clock. But we're passionately interested. You know, we might be up all night. So what is that? Poetry or music or I don't know what you work with your hands. Or, you know. What is it? That's in the direction of what's really our true calling. What are we passionate about? When I think of what I'm doing, I, you know. I really don't think of it as Dharma teacher. I feel like it's love of Dharma. That's what my life's about. That's what I love to do, whatever form it takes. This is just one form of it. But talking to my friends about it or reading about it or, you know, whatever. It's just the same. It's part of that. 
So it doesn't necessarily have a label, and, you know, like tax bracket teacher or you know, lover of Dharma doesn't get pigeonholed, but there it is. Two and a half people talk about. Saved by the bell. <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> any just a kind of a concept. So we'll look into it and see what it is. Otherwise you never get through it. You know, we start something else. It's like an impasse. You know, like sometimes we reach these impasses in relationship. We always end the relationship just at that time because we can't get through it. And then start a new one and we come up to the same impasse somehow. And I can't get through it again. I have to end it, try again. Boredom, we have to look into it. You know, what, who's bored, what's bored, what is boring. Maybe it's relaxing, you know, nothing's happening, we're not used to it. I should be doing something. Well, that's questionable. You know, the old, the old saying, don't just do some, don't just sit there, do something. Maybe your mother used to say, don't just sit there, do something. Well, we say, don't just do something, sit there. <laughs> There is no deeper. There is nowhere else. That's the secret. There is no deeper. It's all surface. Just this moment. There's nothing behind. There's nowhere to go. It's not boring. I assure you. Yeah. In the beginning it seems boring. But it could be very interesting also if you uh, look into it. It's very, very deep. <laughs> it's very rich. The surface, right. The same truth I can need. Yes, theoretically. <laughs> <laughs> Probably aching knees are harder to go through than boredom. But it depends. It's a good question, how do we deal with physical pain in meditation? There are a lot of different approaches to that. I don't think I'll go into that tonight. But relaxation is, a, is good. Any other questions before we perform the last rites here? I'd like to ask you a personal question. Is Lama a first name or a title or what? A title. It's a title. What could you just tell me what this name, Lama Suri, does? What it means? How did you get it? <laughs> From my parents. <laughs> They like the initials. <laughs> they like the initials. 
Surya, Surya Das is my spiritual name from my first guru, <coughs> Nimkaroli Baba, who was an old man in a Czech blanket. In, in Tibet? Did you study in Tibet? No, in India. In India? And um, Lama is a title from my Tibetan teachers. It means a teacher in Tibetan Buddhism. I mean, I have been in Tibet, but generally you can't study in Tibet. Because Tibet is China, you can't stay in China. I studied with the Lamas who escaped from Tibet in Nepal and India and those places, Bhutan, Sikkim, and also in the West. So Lama is a title of teacher, like a teacher or something. Like Sensei. Yeah, exactly. Like Sensei. For example, in anger, the energy of anger or the energy of greed. I'm just giving you my opinion now. If you're asking me what the Buddhism says, there's a whole bunch of different stories. Yeah. I mean, I think relationships is probably a very important part of the path these days. We have to integrate into our path. Monasticism is very rare. Authentic monasticism these days. It's very difficult. Celibacy, I'm talking about. Very rare and difficult. Because of what's going on these days, what we're faced with. The celibates in Tibet never saw a woman or advertising or anything. Didn't have stimulation. I mean, when I lived in India, it was easy. There's nothing to stimulate you. Everybody's totally covered and wrapped up like a mummy all the time, winter and summer, <laughs> etc. So these days, I think the tantric and, and, and life-affirming paths are much more doable and necessary. So we can integrate everything into our path rather than going off to a specialized environment. <coughs> On the other hand, it's very good if you want to focus your energies for time or even your whole life to go alone, you know, mano, alone, monasticism, alone, and concentrate on spiritual work, not being involved in relationships, families, householding, workplace, and so on. But that's very rare and difficult these days, even for monastics. Focus. Yeah, that's a kind of a focus, also. Sitting here and sky gazing is very focused. It's not just wandering around uh, in the um, Oktoberfest somewhere. <laughs> you know, it's pretty focused. <coughs> 
Maybe too focused. Have to relax a little more. You know, also in Tantra, there's a whole path of of um, preserving your sexual energy and stuff like that. So that can be very helpful. But I think today relationships are very important. Most people who try to become monks and nuns have fallen out the other side of the frying pan <coughs> and still feel guilty about it or something complicated. Jump in too fast, pop out the other side. Mm-hmm. And relationships are a very good guru. <laughs> yeah, your partner knows you better than your guru probably. So, I don't know. I think I probably learned more from my partner, my my girlfriend, than uh, from any gurus in the last couple of years. Meaning from our relationship, what it brings out. So, stop here. <laughs>